Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. I have recently returned from Costa Rica, and I am in the last stages of fighting off whatever this sickness is that has been populating the inside of my nostrils and that everyone else seems to have come down with. So if I sound particularly nasally or like my face is full of snot, my apologies. But hopefully I don't sound too bad because I'm pretty much done with this thing. We are not here to discuss the contents of my nostrils. We are here to talk about today's guest, Esme Prez. She's an ex-Mighty Might. That's right, a Mighty Might. She was a ski racer when she was younger, back when she was in high school. She is also a rock climber and married to a rock climber. So she does a lot of rock climbing. But what she's more well known for is being a journalist for a tiny, tiny publication called Bloomberg Business Week. I don't know, maybe you've heard of it. Yes, I am being facetious because, of course, Bloomberg Business Week is a large, respected publication. So this is an interesting turn of events for Esme because what she's used to is being the person interviewing another person. So I somehow convinced her to let me put her in the very uncomfortable position of sitting across a picnic table near the La Brea Tar Pits one evening and letting me bombard her with questions about her life, journalism, skiing, climbing, putting her in that uncomfortable situation where suddenly she had to talk about herself. So let's all head over to the La Brea Tar Pits and talk about rocks, snow, and the exciting world of journalism. Esme Deprez. I am 31 years old and I write for Bloomberg News and Business Week magazine, mostly about government and politics, but sometimes about fun things like skiing and rock climbing. And you yourself are a climber, correct? I am a climber, yeah. My husband is definitely the climber in the family, the real climber in the family, but he introduced me to the sport back in 2009, so I dabble in it now, and I really enjoy it. So how did he introduce you to it? Because I have a girlfriend who I've tried to get into climbing, and it's never going to happen. She just does not enjoy it at all. So how did he get you to give it a try, and why do you like it? I've always been pretty athletic. I was a skier growing up, a ski racer, so you know the idea of a new adventure sport was not totally outside the realm of possibility at all. I met my now husband back in 2008 in New York City. We were both going to the journalism school at Columbia. In 2009, uh, Brooklyn Boulders opened up, and so that was the first kind of major dedicated gym to climbing in New York City. And lo and behold, we moved to Brooklyn and together, we moved in together, and the reason why we moved where we moved, I learned later, was because it was right near where Brooklyn Boulders is opening up. So he had uh, an agenda from he, the beginning. He definitely had an agenda. It was an awesome place to live, so it worked out very well. Uh, I was happy there for many reasons. But yes, he definitely had an agenda. So in 2009, we went for the first time, I believe. I, I had gone a little bit before then, but very little. And so, yeah, Brooklyn Boulders had just opened up. And, you know, in the beginning, it was empty and awesome and we had it to ourselves and my husband you know had been climbing for years and years and years and was was super good and so I just had a a free coach that was awesome to tell me what to do I just watched the sport grow in New York City and kind of 
you know, that was a story of what was happening nationwide, too, at the same time. By the time we left New York City uh, in 2014, well, right now, sorry, there are four or five dedicated climbing gyms. So, so I started climbing in New York City when it was still kind of a relatively obscure thing to do in the city itself, watch the sport grow. I'm definitely not as intense as, as my husband is. He goes all the time and he, you know, he just lives by it. You know, it's cliche to say, but climbing is definitely a mental and a physical sport. And that aspect of it is just really, really cool. And I think really sets it apart from other sports. I mean, it's not just other sports aren't such a mental game in the same way. Um, just this mental puzzle of trying to figure out a boulder problem or figure out how the hell you're going to get up the cliff. So I like it for those both of those reasons. So you started out in the gym. Have you transitioned into outdoor climbing or are you strictly a gym rat? Oh yeah, no, no. We definitely climb both. Um, I imagine he wouldn't (laughs) just let you hang out in the gym if if his agenda was to get you in there. Uh, (laughs) No, I definitely climb outside. We have gone, yeah, I mean, it's taken us, you know, to just some really cool places. I mean, my husband is from Ohio originally and often when we go back there, we'll go down to Kentucky and go to the Red River Gorge. You know, climbing takes you to just crazy places, which is really fun about it. I mean, you know, going to Kentucky, we wouldn't maybe normally go to Kentucky for a long weekend, but climbing takes us there and it's just really cool to be able to see parts of the country like that. I was thinking back, we went to, my a best friend of mine got married in Italy and so we took a side trip to the Dolomites and climbed in the Dolomites and that was amazing. I mean, the rocks there were insane and we just, again, it took us to these crazy places. Like in, in the Dolomites, we stayed literally in like the crook of a mountain top in a hut there. You could hike up the mountain to get to the hut or you could take a gondola. You could take it and it closed at five. So if you missed the last gondola, you were screwed. We stayed in that crazy hut because we wanted to climb right outside our door. And that was just so cool. But I, I think like a sport like tennis, I mean, maybe you go to crazy places to play on a tennis court, but a tennis court is a tennis court, you know, with climbing or skiing or, you know, these these sports that you want to experience the outdoors and the this is not really going anywhere. No, I think I think I know what you're trying to say because I think golfers travel a lot because they're like world-class golfing destinations but they're traveling and not to bag on golfers but they're traveling to a destination where humans have manipulated the environment so it's great for golfing. Humans definitely manipulate the rock to a degree for climbing and develop a climbing area but I do think it's different in that you have to seek out a place where those features exist. So so that's what it sounds like you're saying to me is that to a certain degree effects now when you travel instead of just thinking, oh, what's the what's the nice thing I can see in Venice or wherever? It's also, oh, well, what kind of rocky structures are nearby that we can go climb? Yep, absolutely. Which is probably not what you thought when you were 10 years old and you would go somewhere. And my husband Alex is totally going to hold me to this now that I've said it on tape. I mean, I'm a skier, so I love going to, you know, new mountains and and going to different countries to ski. And it's the same idea with climbing. You always want to go to that spot that you haven't gone to yet. Um, And so climbing takes you to places like skiing does uh, in a way that, yeah, I think other sports don't, don't take you. A tennis court is a tennis court no matter where it is, but a crag is not the same crag you know, regardless of where it is. I mean, it's always different. Oh, absolutely. Even even within a few hours of each other. I, I was just in Joshua Tree this weekend, and for some reason, I get more terrified in Joshua Tree than I do in other areas here. Really? I got, it, for some reason, it frightens me more than Yosemite. Why? Or Takeets. I don't know what it is. I try to figure it out. I don't know if it's a rock quality or something, but there's something about routes in Joshua Tree that just mentally challenge me more than a lot of other areas. Interesting. Yeah. In the Dolomites, if you are at all averse to shitty, shitty rock that breaks off when you 
pull on it. Uh, don't go to the Dolomites, but otherwise, it's well, an you're certainly spot. selling a world-class <laughs> travel destination. It's definitely a world-class travel destination, but the rock is crazy, and I definitely you wear a helmet. And also, the funny thing that we went to the Dolomites, these all these Italian climbers were just climbing over us like all the time. I mean, I'm relatively slow. If my husband was by himself, he would be you know going way faster than those guys. But I was slowing us down and. All these Italian climbers just didn't care. They just climbed. They just like just we had like five people head. on an anchor at one point. I was like, "What are you doing? This is crazy." I had never seen that before. Again, you're just seeing things <laughs> that are very different than what you're used to back home. You've mentioned skiing a few times, and so you said you grew up skiing. I grew up ski racing in New Hampshire for a team. Uh, my brother was a skier and was a ski racer. Got into it through my parents and so I followed in his footsteps so I actually went to a ski academy when I was in high school uh, in New Hampshire so I would go I grew up in Maine so I'm originally from Maine so I would go to high school in Maine in the fall and spring and then leave for the winter and go to a ski academy in New Hampshire just super lucky childhood amazing opportunity to ski every day and race and just train all the time in frigid cold weather on ice and it was really really fun so yeah so I, I grew up skiing that way and so I skied through college and competitively and then hung them up after that but still you know now go whenever I possibly can it's obviously hard living you know in in the city up until you know a year ago I was living in New York City so that made it a little bit difficult to go as much as I would like but now that I live in California it is easier I mean skiing is my sport that's my main sport climbing is Maybe second. Some sometimes you can combine them and you can cross country ski to. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to get to Tuolumne Meadows soon, you'd have to cross country ski to get there. We were just talking about that with my dad. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of California and and skiing in California and climbing, I mean the Bishop Mammoth combo is just incredible to go skiing one day and climbing the next. My husband and I did that last year for the first time. You know, perhaps it was because the winter was so terrible in California last year, but just the elevation change there is just so crazy that you can go climbing one day and skiing the next. So that was a perfect combination. I would love to hear about this skiing academy because I have no idea. I grew up in the swamps. I grew up in the south where snow was a very rare thing. So I have very limited skiing or snowboarding experience. What exactly happens when you would go to your skiing academy? Is it like being on the football team and they just have you do drills or do you stay somewhere and it's like a boarding school? It's like a boarding school. So just want to underscore again how lucky I was to do this. For most ski teams are affiliated or ski academies are kind of full year. So a school like Holderness in New Hampshire is a school that was right nearby. I mean, that's a full year boarding school and you go there. If you don't ski, you go there no matter what you do. But this one was called Waterville Valley Academy and it was uh, at Waterville Valley in New Hampshire, which is an awesome mountain that I grew up skiing at and this was just a little bit unique in that it was only I think a five-month school so you're it's not a full-time deal um, it is a boarding school but it's not open all year round so you couldn't even go there solely if you wanted to you have to be affiliated with another you know with your kind of home school so again I would go to high school in Maine in the fall leave in the winter I would only usually do it for three or four months not the full five and you go to class in the morning and then you ski in the afternoon and you're training all the time. I mean, it's intense. So yeah, it's, I guess, kind of like being on the football team and that you're, you're definitely training, you know, you're skiing every day and then at night you're working out, you're doing cross training stuff. Um, and on the weekends, every weekend you're racing throughout the winter. How long did you compete? For pretty much as long as I could. I mean, or, or as early as I could, I probably started, it's, you're called a mighty mite when you're a little kid. A so. mighty mite? Yeah. <laughs> 
I love this name, actually. Like as in the insect, the mite? I guess, yeah. I I think it's spelled Because they're known for skiing a lot? I'm curious where that came from. I cannot give you the answer to that. I wish I could. Uh, But it was a mighty mite, a proud mighty mite. I mean, you you know, you do stupid little races when you're five or six years old. And then you, you know, if you take to the sport and you like it, you just keep going from there. And so... So this was like your Pinewood Derby. Instead of doing the Pinewood Derby, you you were skiing as a mighty mite? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, all through middle school school and and high school and then I skied for a couple years in college as well when I wasn't off doing other things and especially growing up and learning to ski in the east this is like a big battle within the ski world whether you know you're a better skier if you ski if you grew up skiing in the east or skiing in the west but if you grew up skiing in the east you know how to handle ice and that makes you very tough I think so I was actually telling somebody the other day are you, are you trying one. to piss off the West Coast? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. I was remembering a race that we did. It was n- literally negative 24 degrees. And it was on the top of the mountain. And there was this little two-chair lift going up the mountain. So you took the quad mostly to the top. And then you took this little two-chair just like a little bit more to the very, very top. And that's where our race was. It was closed for the day because it was too windy and horrible out. And we had to hike up the trail to, to race down. I, if that doesn't make you tough, I don't know what does. <laughs> so I'm assuming you don't compete anymore. That's correct. Why not? Because You're it would too, be very sad too big to be a mighty mite? Is that <laughs> Definitely too big to be a mighty mite. I do it for fun now, and, and that's really enjoyable, too, because I grew up skiing. Like you know, I mean, skiing was always an amazingly fun sport for me to do, but it was always about training, and now I just get to go off and do whatever I want. So that's really fun. I mean, just to have the the day to yourself and not have to train and not to have to you know do what your coach tells you you can actually just go wherever you want and free ski and you know get into powder and just kind of do whatever you want is just a treat there's not really an infrastructure built for racers my age there's something called masters that are when you're quite a bit older i don't think that's going to be me so we live in an ageist society, is what you were telling <laughs> yes, us. Yes, we definitely do. <laughs> you spent a lot of time uh, doing competitive skiing when you were growing up, but at some point you became interested in journalism. So when did that come about? I was always n- really nosy, so I journalism kind of was always a good fit, I thought, for myself. Um, were you punished a lot as a child <laughs> for poking your nose in other people's business? Not punished. Like, you know, my mom is a sociologist, so she's she's a good nosy person herself. So she's probably where I get it from, partly. And my dad, too. But So, yeah, I mean, journalism just always fascinated me. I always liked, you know, reading the news, knowing things first, like getting to ask people crazy questions, you know, and be paid for it is just the dream. So um, I didn't really know how to get into journalism. So... I went to college at, at Boston College and graduated, moved to France for two years, kind of fucked around there, taught some English and traveled a lot and just was kind of, quote unquote, finding myself. And then I came back oh, to so the you U.S. Went on, you went on the finding yourself journey. <laughs> yeah. And then I came back. I applied from for to journalism school from there. So I did get a I did end up getting a graduate, you know, a graduate degree, a master's degree in journalism, which is not you don't have to do that. Um, a lot of people just obviously go work at small papers and work their way up. And I just, I don't know, for some reason, I just didn't really know how to do that, which sounds really stupid in hindsight. Or I just maybe wanted to take the shortcut. I don't know. So I ended up going to graduate school for it. Uh, It was awesome. I mean, there's a big war within the journalism world of whether journalism school is worth it or not. But I definitely think it was. I mean, it just taught me a lot and gave me a lot of amazing connections in the journalism world, which is important, like everywhere, like it or not. And I also met my husband, so I can't really complain about anything. And then he made you go climbing. (laughs) 
which you just gave me a fantastic segue because you went to journalism school, met your husband who introduced you to climbing. And the way you and I have come together is that you wrote an article about Waltopia and the founders of Waltopia. Tell me about that. Yeah. So this story was so much fun to report. Journalism is fun for a lot of reasons, but it's really fun when you get to go to somewhere you would never ever go and get to talk to people that you would never ever talk to otherwise. So like I said, when I was living in New York, you know, I really had a front row seat to watching the the indoor climbing world grow. When I started climbing in New York City, there was just Brooklyn Boulders. There was that was really the only dedicated climbing gym in the city of eight million people, which is just crazy. I think the fifth one is being built right now. So just really at a front row seat to watching the sport take off and I write for a business magazine. I write for Business Business Week magazine and Bloomberg News. So I, I just thought there had to be a business story in this industry somewhere. And so I called up uh, Mike Helt at the business, Climbing Business Journal, which I learned was a thing. And immediately he told me, I mean, Waltopia is the business story of the climbing world right now. Uh, Waltopia is the lar- world's largest manufacturer of artificial walls now. That is the story. And, and I looked and, you know, like we always do with stories. I mean, I tried to figure out had anybody written about Waltopia? Had anybody known about this? company and what they did and and nobody really had. I mean, there'd been some mentions in climbing media, but very few. And so nobody really knew about this company. And so I took it to my editor and said, you know, I think this is a really fascinating story of how these guys were able to come to dominate this industry. I mean, Waltopia is based in Bulgaria, in middle of nowhere, Bulgaria. It's still located there. And they have just totally dominated the American climbing wall market and the world market. What did your editor think about that? Was your editor like, why the hell would anybody want to read this? Or, or was your editor like, oh, yeah, this does sound like a great story. So this was a magazine feature story. So that means it's it's longer. It's like 3,500 words. You know, we're talking. So we had the trend for this story. We knew that climbing gyms were just booming. I mean, there's practically a new climbing gym that opens in the country uh, every week this year. Like there have been over 40 of them that op- have opened this year in 2015 already. This is also the year the Dawn Wall Ascent, which exactly. made climbing a huge thing. I go to a climbing festival in Red Rock every spring, and this year it was huge. The parking lot was more full than it had ever been. And it was partly because of that. So I think you probably picked the right year to approach your editor about it. Yes, exactly. So the trend was there. So we just had to find the story. I mean, my editor was really interested in who's kind of cracked the code of enabling this sport to grow in the way that it has. And that's when I called the Climbing Business Journal and kind of asked them that question. So initially, I I just came to him with a trend. He said, no, you have to find kind of who cracked the code. The elements of a good story, of a good you know, magazine story are the same elements that make up a good short story. I mean, you need, you know, interesting characters, you need conflict, you need, I don't know, perhaps a lesson or whatever. I mean, some overarching theme. I mean, so you need all of these kind of pieces to come together. And in Waltopia, I mean, it absolutely came together because you have this super fascinating guy who started the company. His name's Avilo Penchev. He's this climber turned theoretical physicist turned serial entrepreneur who started this company in the 90s. And, you know, by sheer force of will and ego and energy and innovation has just turned it into this company that now every cool good gym opening now pretty much in the U.S. especially, but also around the world is a Waltopia built gym. I didn't really even think when I was a climber, you know, when I was starting to climb or even if, you know, last up until last year when I started looking into the story or this year, rather, you know, I didn't think about who built the walls, you know, why they looked the way they did, why they were formed the way they were. But the story of the walls are are the story of why 
partially why climbing is such a big deal now. All the pieces were there in this story. I mean, you had the fascinating character who, you know, in, in the CEO of the company, you had, you know, the improbable rise of a company from no, middle of nowhere Bulgaria to dominate the world market. You had the trend behind it. So actually, my editor came from Outside Magazine and Men's Journal, so I also knew I kind of had a kindred spirit oh, in him. Oh, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you had a good end. To, <laughs> he, I knew he would be, you know, inherently interested in the story if it if it made for a good story, which I, I think it did. Reading the article, he certainly comes across as a very interesting character. I'm trying to remember some of the things he said in the article, but he definitely comes across as a very confident take no bullshit kind of person yes you described him in a nutshell he is brash he is bold he is totally full of himself he's super smart so i can't say that he you know doesn't have the right to be perhaps a little bit full of himself and he was super open i mean also you don't have to have full access for a story like this but it certainly helps i mean the company waltopia and avilo just let me you know roam free in the factory and you know watch people do what they do watch the people build these climbing walls and the steel structures that go behind walls and the you know the prefabricated panels that they make to make up the wall and you know gave me full access to look at their finances and you know to talk to Vilo for I was there for I spent two day two full days with him to spend that much time with the CEO is is great um, was it just you going of. through his day with him Pretty much, yeah. So the first day I was in Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria. This was back in September. So as the first day I was with him in in the capital and in the headquarters and just kind of observing him in meetings. And he had meetings with investors and he had meetings with engineers and just kind of all elements of his business. And then we went to the climbing gym that night because I do own and operate a gym in Sofia, a small one because the climbing world is actually not that big in Bulgaria. But then the next day he took me in his beautifully immaculate Mercedes uh, to Letnitsa, which is a little town of 2,500 people, two and a half hours east of Sofia. And that's where the factory is. And that's where all of the magic happens. I mean, this is where, you know, these burly Bulgarian men just labor away at the walls that you and I are climbing on now, you know, at gyms like Sender One and, you know, Momentum and, you know, just all of these gyms across the country that use Waltopia now. Getting full access to his day like that, it's probably a great thing and a little bit of a bad thing, right? Because you have to make sure he's aware you're going to be there. So you have to make sure he's not putting on a show and feeding you crap that he wants you to report that isn't accurate. How do you look through that? How do you make sure that isn't the case? Or was did you feel like that was the case or not the case at all? That definitely is a concern, I think. But Avilo is like a pretty no bullshit guy. You can tell that immediately from meeting him. He just, he doesn't put on airs. He, you know, he swears like a pirate. He's like calls people idiots and tells them to go back to kindergarten in meetings when a journalist is there. I mean, you know, I'd done my homework before I went to Bulgaria and and met him. I had talked to people that worked with him. I had talked to people that didn't like him. You know, I'd kind of had a picture of who this guy likely was before I went. Everything that I saw when I was there matched up with what everybody else had already told me basically good and bad I definitely didn't have the concern that what he was showing me was not the real Avilo I mean he would call you an idiot for asking should I put on a show for this journalist he'd be like why the fuck would I do that you know he just would be he just wouldn't he wouldn't see he wouldn't have time for that basically uh pretty much he's a really busy guy he's like I'm gonna sell walls whether you write this story or not exactly exactly and Avilo was was an amazing character because he let me into his world I mean if you go interview an American CEO I mean I think this has a lot to do with culture in a lot of ways American CEOs 
are very are a lot more guarded in general. And that this is not, uh, you know, it's not because Avilo is Bulgarian, but I, I think it has something to do with that he's not an American CEO. So he's not even used to, like, having a reason to put on airs, you know, for somebody. I mean, he's just going to be himself. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, Yeah, I think I do. And he's also probably a pretty big fish in a relatively small pond where he's located. Yes. So probably has enough power that he doesn't feel the need to have to do anything like yeah. that. And he's just a pretty no-nonsense guy. So he just, if anybody did kind of put on a show, he would think it was crap you and think, call them out on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go through what reporting on this story looked like. So you set everything up, you flew to Bulgaria, and how many days did you say you were there? I was there for four or five days. I mean, I was with him for two, two and a half of those days. Um, and, you know, from California especially, it was, you know, a full day of flying, so it takes a little bit to get there. So one of the things we'll do is definitely link to the story, and then everyone can read it. And I think this is a great opportunity to, to give everybody kind of a look behind the scenes of, of how a story like this comes together. You checked in, you found out about it, you pitched it to your editor, your, your editor bit, and put everything together. What's the process of going from that idea to conducting all your research and then providing this final story? So the first thing that you do is you kind of look up everything that's been written about a company like this. I mean, you want to learn what's out there already and learn what news you can break or, you know, what you can explore and giving to readers that they don't know yet. This was such a great story for that reason because Waltopia really hadn't been written about. So that's kind of the journalist dream when you have something so fresh and so new, especially for the American reader that, you know, they don't know anything about this story coming into it. So you really have a blank page. Isn't that an apt uh, description to just kind of tell the story to readers and they don't, you know, they, they have no idea what they're what to expect. So you do a clip search. Uh, you find out everything that's been written on the company. So that's what I did. You know, this company has been written about in the Bulgarian press. So I just did a little Google Translate and learned what they had said about Waltopia and about Avilo. This story really is a story about how he was able to grow this business from middle of nowhere, Bulgaria, and make it into the world's largest manufacturer of climbing walls. I mean, how does that process develop? That's It's an incredible story, and I really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of how they were able to do that. So, I mean, the first thing before going to Bulgaria I did was I wanted to talk to as many gym owners as I could, both people who had gone with Waltopia and people who had not uh, ended up going with Waltopia to talk to them about you know why they did what they did, what he was like to work with. I wanted to talk to friends. I wanted to talk to people that knew. I mean, Avilo is Waltopia. Waltopia is Avilo. And the company, it has his spirit like embedded in that company. Not all companies are like that, I think, but certainly with Waltopia, you know, the way it functions at every level is because of Avilo's idiosyncrasies with his personality. And you can just see him reflected in every aspect of the business. And so um, I really wanted to learn about him as a person. And so talking to Jeff Peterson, for example, at Momentum, I mean, Momentum in Salt Lake City is now, you know, a, a gym chain, but Momentum was Avilo's first customer. And so that was a really crucial find for me as a reporter I wanted to you know that was so fun to find out that Momentum was their first client because then I could really start at the beginning of their American conquest if you will (laughs) Um, and you know find out how they grew from there you know obviously by the time Waltopia came to America they were already you know a dominant brand in Europe but I really wanted to see how they 
conquered the American market, specifically for our readers. I mean, Business Week is a global magazine, but the, the story of, of American climbing, I think, is the most fresh and the most new and the most, you know, interesting, perhaps, of how this sport was able to, con- you know, become mass market in the U.S. So, yeah, just talking to everybody that I could who knew him. And, you know, I wanted to talk to clients also that or, or gym owners that hadn't gone with Waltopia and talk to them about why not. I also just talked with some independent architects, for example, about the way climbing had evolved. I mean, the guys at the Climbing Business Journal were totally invaluable to helping me learn about the industry. I mean, obviously, I approached this as a climber, so I knew the mechanics and the physics of, of climbing and, you know, why people go to climbing gyms but I didn't understand you know out of the gate about the evolution of climbing gyms and how much they've changed over the years I mean since the late 1980s gym has changed a lot I mean they used to be these dark dingy holes that only core climbers would go to to train when the weather was bad as you well know and you know now they are these full service operations they have juice bars and yoga studios and places to hook up your laptop and wi-fi and you know, they're just, they're totally different operations than they were. So I had to learn the business of how that model changed as well. And they're all over the country now. When I mean, I grew up in Louisiana. There was no climbing at all. Trees, houses, that's about it. But there's no such thing as rock climbing or climbing gyms or anything like that. And I know that there are definitely multiple ones there now. Yeah, there are. And some of the fastest growing spots in the country for climbing gyms now are places that don't have this core climber scene already built in, right? You used to have gyms that we're only located in spots where there was already, a, you know, an outdoor community. There was a crag nearby, or you know, a good crag nearby, where you already had this core customer base that you knew would go to the climbing gym. And now it's, you know, you have places like Atlanta, Georgia, is, you know, not what anybody would call a place with a natural core climber scene, but. Atlanta, Georgia now has one of the biggest gyms in the country and it's booming and they built a second one and it's, I'm um, talking about Stone Summit in Atlanta, place where you don't automatically affiliate with climbing but it's it's a huge climbing community or there is a huge climbing community now and that's because of indoor gyms. So people rag on indoor climbing, indoor gym rats but they've really done a lot for the sport as far as growing it you know, whether you think that's good or bad uh, is another question but as far as growing it and about kind of growing this market for these companies like Waltopia to come in and innovate and make money at the same time doing it. I'm sure there are plenty who would argue the merits of whether it's good or bad. I think anytime you can make the general public learn to appreciate something, the likelihood of it sticking around and being respected and having any sort of longevity improves. So if for no other reason than that, I think it's a beneficial thing. Yeah, I mean, definitely there are climbers that don't want to see their local crag be dominated by a bunch of gumbies that come in and you know make them wait for them to you know cause lines and yeah we we live on an earth with an increasing population that no matter what you do eventually people get or other people want to do it yeah that's that that's true i have nothing good (laughs) (laughs) so back to the story so you traveled to Bulgaria. What did you think about Bulgaria? Was it your first time there? Bulgaria, it was my first time in Bulgaria. Really cool thing about journalism, like climbing, just takes you to places where you don't usually get to go. And, you know, Bulgaria might probably not be my first vacation hotspot, so I'm, 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 but I'm really excited to have seen it. And it was really cool. I mean, Sofia is a, is a, is a very cosmopolitan, co- you know, capital in a lot of ways, European capital. Felt very Eastern and Western European at the same time. You know, most people spoke English. That was somewhat of a surprise. I mean, Bulgaria is a very poor country, but you know, the populace is very well educated. So that certainly speaks to that. Yeah. Waltopia is headquartered in 
this kind of funny building. They're building this new headquarters that's going to be amazing and massive and beautiful. But right now they're kind of in this old building in the middle of nowhere. Not not in the middle of nowhere, but they're on the outskirts of the city. I had a lot of trouble with my taxi driver finding out actually where this place was. They're all cramped in there. I mean, this company has grown so fast that they are just totally outgrowing their um, their office space. And so that's why obviously they're building a new headquarters. Um, but that's where I met Avilo the first day. And he was in an engineering meeting, or meeting with his engineers when I got there, swearing at them and telling them that they were stupid and that they should go back to kindergarten because they were idiots. I feel like maybe his leadership tactics would be not so popular in this country. Exactly. (laughs) Or that he would not be willing to share them with a reporter and (laughs) let a reporter hear him. Although this wasn't Bulgarian, I should say. But yeah, his assistant, actually, Boriana was great and she's the person that I first initially made contact to schedule this whole trip with and she was the one that was telling me all these crazy things about him like he swears at at people and tells them they're idiots and there are these signs around the headquarters that kind of implore workers to work like kucheta which is the Bulgarian word for dogs and they're very open about the fact that that's they want their people working hard and they want people to you know they only want people working there who really want to work there. I think that probably has a lot to do with their success at the same time. When I was fact-checking, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but when I was fact-checking the story, because that's obviously what we need to do before we print... Um, it would be wise. There, would be there, wise. there are plenty of news organizations that don't do that, so it's good to hear that Business Week does. <laughs> Absolutely. So I am, an, uh, I am extremely anal-retentive about fact-checking, and I was fact-checking with Avilo, and I was saying, okay, so when I was at headquarters, I learned that if you're a worker at Waltopia and you arrive at the office one minute past eight o'clock in the morning, twice a month, you get fined. The fine starts at $5 a day and it goes up from there or $5 an hour. It starts at $5 and then it goes up. So you're fined if you're late. And he corrected me and he said, no, 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 that's wrong. You get fined the equivalent of $5 and up if you're late one second past 8 a.m., <laughs> twice a month so that's what you'll see in the story one second past eight o'clock so they are very open about their about their strict policies but you know i i do think obviously i'm not advocating for necessarily that kind of strict work environment but you're not advocating for for mental and verbal abuse no no but but avilo really is able to i mean i think it's cultural too but you know in some ways but that that style of management has worked for him. I can't say, you know, the average reader of the story will go, want to go work for Avilo after reading it, but I take a critical eye to every story I do, and the worst thing you can call a story is a puff piece. I mean, that's the last thing that a journalist ever wants to hear about their work, that you didn't take a critical eye to a company or a politician or, you know, any issue that you explore. And so certainly I, I took a, a very critical eye at this company and what they had done. And I also can't walk away as just a human and not be kind of inspired and in awe of what Avilo was able to build. And his partner, Mateen Musov, I should say. I mean, it wasn't just Avilo. He had a he had a very crucial partner um, from the very beginning and Mateen. And the two of them were just able to build this company from nothing. I mean, these guys were grew up poor in central Bulgaria, you know, with nothing. And Avilo told me he had, he didn't eat in restaurants until he was in his 20s. I mean, these are people that did not grow up 
with families that just gave them money and were able to build something. You know, they really did it on their own. I mean, one thing actually that didn't get make it into the final cut of the story was Avilo actually started a plastic bag company in college, and that's how he had money to go on to build Waltopia. But he started importing plastic bags from Turkey and Syria and China into Bulgaria when he was in college with a couple of friends. And they started at first selling them to local fruit vendors and, you know, random kind of super, not even supermarkets, just markets. Um, and eventually built up this big company that's still around today in Bulgaria and is one of the biggest companies in Bulgaria. But that's where he made his money right out of college. Or not, he didn't even graduate college. So he made his money that way. And then it wasn't until his friend Mateen, uh, who was on the kind of local climb, climbing competition circuit in Bulgaria, he wanted to start building walls and walls for competitions in Bulgaria. Avilo thought it sounded like fun and he had, you know, been a climber and was still a climber at that time. Um, I mean, still is, but just not so much because he works all the time. So they started the company that way and it just, it really took off. I mean, they built on a concept that was originally kind of pioneered by Entrepris, which, uh, which is a pretty well-known climbing wall company throughout the world, obviously a French company, but they started the concept of prefabricated panels. And then Waltopia really took this concept and, and took off with it. If you go to the old climbing gyms in the country, very few, I think, are built this way still, although some of the local independent crews still build them this way. But, you know, you had to build this steel frame inside the gym. You had to weld it together on site, and then you had to, you know, nail up plywood and then hand trowel concrete onto the plywood. And it kind of created this lumpy, dark, dingy, you know, version of rock that didn't look like rock at all. Um, and just kind of looked shitty. You walk into a Waltopia gym now, and it's just a totally different sensory experience. I mean, there's crazy 3D curves and sharp angles and all these colors and, you know, just a lot of work put into the illustration of the walls and the design and the color. And you can also really maximize wall space a lot better. Gym owners say they're, they're cheaper to maintain, they're easier to keep clean. So there's a lot of reasons why they're better, but it was really Waltopia that brought this aesthetic to the U.S. and really helped to make it popular here. Something that's kind of ironic here is that you traveled to Bulgaria to get a story of what many would consider a classic American dream story. <laughs> that's, yeah, he... It's the Bulgarian dream, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's the Bulgarian dream of yeah. conquering the U.S. market. Rags to riches. And it's also the story, I mean, this is also a story about American manufacturing in a lot of ways. I mean, one of the reasons why Wiltopia has succeeded the way that they have is because they have really cheap labor costs there. I mean, it's the poorest country in the EU, and they also have the cheapest labor costs. I mean, almost on par with China. You take a, a company like Entrepri, they do their manufacturing for gyms in the U.S. For American gyms, they do manufacturing in the U.S. And Rockworks is the same way. Waltopia is able to do what they do because they have cheaper labor costs and they can take advantage of it by, by kind of one-upping American manufacturers. Just cost is a, certainly a huge factor in their success. They're, they're, they're able to take advantage of these cheaper labor costs in Bulgaria uh, and combine that with the innovation that they've the long hours of innovating that they've put into creating the walls that they do, reasons for their success. They can save a lot of money if their employees continue to show up to work late. <laughs> no, they just fire them. <laughs> Actually, yeah, I was like, well, okay, if if, this, if the worker is, is late more than two days a month, what do you do? And he said, well, you you pretty much realize that this is not the worker for you. If that's <laughs> so that's it kind very... of it weeds out. That's what I was trying to get at before. It weeds out the workers that, you know, aren't serious about their job, he would say. That was a very diplomatic way of him saying he fires them. From a man not known for his for diplomacy. diplomacy yeah. 
or a diplomacy of a different type. Perhaps not the type of diplomacy that we have come to know from American businessmen. Right. In the public, anyway. What have the reactions been to the story so far from the public and from the subjects? Avilo wrote me the most hilarious email after the story came out. Again, journalists do not write for their subjects. This was not a case where, you know, I wanted him to be pleased by the story necessarily. You know, I mean, if I want him to feel like his business and him and he himself were accurately represented, but I don't write a story to to make him happy. Right. It's not free advertising for him. Exactly. But he did write me a hilarious email in which he said First of all, we used I used a quote of him talking about masturbation, and he thought I was very brave for, for publishing that. It was a hilarious quote. He said, when I read it, I started to like myself more. <laughs> and then he called me brave for using the quote about masturbation. And then he said, I like you more now, at least 25% more. <laughs> There's no better response, I think, to an article than that. <laughs> well, yeah, there are better responses, but... That's great because because he's an engineer, he even quantifies. Um, but also, I mean, I think yeah, I've gotten you know great feedback from the article. I think people are just fascinated to learn about kind of the story behind the walls and some, a concept that they never really thought about before. Like I said, I mean, when I started coming, I definitely didn't think about who made these walls and why do they look the way they do and how were they able to get here and who built them and you know were they built in this middle of nowhere town in Bulgaria by men I'll never meet um, so just never thought about that but I think friends all our friends also think it's funny I mean our friends in the climbing world especially because my husband works in the climbing industry and he's written about climbing for the New York Times and for Alpinist magazine and others and so he's really kind of the climber writer in the family the fact that I wrote about climbing this time is just kind of funny because I'm not I'm definitely not the climber or the climber in the family but also I might sometimes bitch a tiny bit about how much climbing dominates our lives so I think that they think it's especially funny for that reason there was I saw one of our friends post on Facebook a comment like I love of all people Esme wrote this <laughs> I just I just like that because I thought well that's interesting but it was funny if you knew kind of the dynamic I love the way you just shared your story and then completely destroyed your story within a moment I don't know it was funny are you being hounded by other manufacturers of holds and things now trying to get stories in business week because of this one sometimes that happens with this one no, I mean, even like a company like Entrepree and Rockworks, which are kind of the major competitors in this sphere, I mean, they're not obviously psyched about the fact that Waltopia has come in and dominate the American wall manufacturing world, but they also are not, they're not fighting that idea. I mean, they, they see that it, they recognize that it's happening. They kind of, you know, give credit where credit is due a little bit. So, no, I mean, sometimes you do get stupid pitches from people that after they read your story they think you'll be interested in they're like hey you already wrote this story yeah. why don't you write this story again about and me you're like no that has nothing to do with anything but no, no no climbing companies have have come after me looking for publicity after this story maybe they just didn't read it I don't know well, maybe maybe after this enormous podcast <laughs> travels throughout the world you'll, you'll get bombarded that would be great I love I love getting pitch stories it's that's um, a hard part of the job is to always try to find the new ideas. I mean, you know, some of our some of my work is driven by what's happening in the news, and others 
are stories that I went out and kind of tried to find myself. And so that's a really hard aspect of the job is to find those stories and those interesting characters. Total props to the Climbing Business Journal. Without the Climbing Business Journal, I would not have known that Waltopia was the story here. I mean, I wanted to write a business story about the climbing industry, but I didn't know what that would entail. And the Climbing Business Journal really helped me identify who it was that I should write about and, and also kind of indicated that this would make for an interesting story too. I mean, yes, you might have a company that comes to dominate an industry, whatever it is, but it's not always going to be a man as interesting as Avilo or a story as interesting as Waltopia's rise to the top. So it was really a, a great mix of all of that stuff. For this story, you got to travel to Bulgaria. Do you often get to travel for your stories or, or do you spend most of your time domestically? I'm typically a state and local government reporter, so I report a lot on what legislatures are doing and what governors are doing and public policy and how public policy affects people's lives. I usually don't travel internationally for work, but I do end up traveling quite a bit domestically for work. The last time I counted it was like 16 states, but it's definitely gone up since then. So um, it's a fantastic way to see these parts of the country that I would never be able to see and just, you know, learn about other people living right in your backyard who you never interact with. I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time now in North Dakota and the very southern tip of Texas and, you know, these places where, again, these are not where I would go on vacation probably, but they're really important places to to know about and to, to meet people in and to learn about what's going on there. It's just as important as in your own backyard. And so that's a really just one of the coolest things about my job is just to getting to do that. Um, so I, pro- I would say I travel, you know, every couple months. It also just totally depends on the news. I mean, I was in New Orleans for Hurricane Isaac. We don't really cover a ton of hurricanes, but that one happened to coincide with the, the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. So that was a, an especially big event that took me to New Orleans, for example. So it's some news-driven stuff, like actual news events happening right now. And then stories that I find that happen to be in North Dakota or, you know, the south tip of Texas or wherever, something like that. Does anything stand out in your mind as a story that left a really strong impression on you, maybe because it turned out to be such a different story than what you thought you were going to be reporting? Yeah, one of the stories I'm most proud of from my career is is a story that I did um, down in south Texas. I used to cover abortion politics a lot. I don't cover it so much anymore at, the, at this very moment just because I have other commitments. Um, But I used to follow a lot when when states began enacting uh, really restrictive abortion laws in 2011. I covered that extensively for uh, for a number of years. And so when I was down in 2013 in Texas, I had traveled to the Capitol to Austin when the legislature there was passing this big omnibus abortion bill to restrict clinics and how they could operate. We wanted to go down south where, you know, South Texas is very poor. It's very Hispanic. Um, There's also already not a lot of abortion clinics down there. This law was going to potentially close what few remaining there were. And so you would have this huge swath of the country with no clinic, very little just women's healthcare access, period. And so I went down there and kind of as the legislature was passing this stuff, just to kind of figure out what what would women do down there? What would they do if all these abortion clinics closed? And Texas had already passed... Um, a law previously that really restricted the funding for just women's health care in general. So women were already kind of 
like subsidized contraceptives, for example. I mean, they the budget for that had just been slashed, and so uh, there was already some you know health problems that had been developing for that among uh, primarily these poor and mostly Hispanic women down in South Texas. So, to make a long story short, at that point, we knew at that point that access had gotten so bad that women were already traveling across the border to Mexico to buy abortion-inducing pills. So you can have an abortion via pills or you can have it doing a effectively called surgical abortion where you have to you know, be with a doctor or a nurse to do it. So we already knew at that point that women were already traveling across the border for these pills um, to, to get them in Mexico at pharmacies across the border because they freely uh, sell them. It's, it's an ulcer medication, actually, that you can take. And so that's what women would buy. What I learned in that reporting trip was that they were already, you know, people were smuggling these drugs stateside and they were being sold at Texas flea markets. That was just a really important development in the world of, in the, in the world of abortion politics, the fact that what became known as DIY abortions were being done in the U.S., in a country where abortion is a legal procedure if you can get it, you know, if, if you have access to it. Um, I mean, it's legal, but obviously you don't always have access to it. It was an example of a story where, you know, we, I just thought I was going to go down there and talk about women, what women would do without abortion clinics. Well, it turns out that, you know, the situation was already so dire down there as far as access was concerned that they were already taking these kind of draconian steps to get abortions on their own to effectively do it themselves. You know, that was a story that ended up being discussed on the floor of the legislature as they passed that law that would go on to close a bunch of clinics in Texas. It was a powerful example for me of how public policy can really affect people on the ground. I mean, that's what I actually try to write about. I mean, this story in Bulgaria about climbing was an awesome diversion from a lot of the more you know, depressing things I write about sometimes. Like, oh, he just mistreats his workers. They don't have to, (laughs) that's not as bad as some of these other things. But, but I, you know, what I try to do is, is really write stories that shed light on what people's kind of everyday experiences are. And I happen to be interested in how public policy affects people's lives and the impact that laws have on, on the way people can live. And so this was just a really powerful example of, I think, of, of something that was happening. You know, we didn't know that these abortion drugs were being sold at flea markets in Texas. Now we do. And legislators, you know, can absolutely be okay with that. But they have to know that it's going on. And that's my job is to just definitely not to say whether that should be going on or not. I'm not an advocate for either side. But I think information is always a good thing to have. And it's my job to make sure that people know What's going on? I do think a lot of people don't recognize the difference between news gathering, news reporting, and editorializing, and the separate values in those two two separate things. Which is really frustrating for a journalist that does try to be impartial and not take a side. I mean, my job, I, I tell people if I was paid to have an opinion, I would be paid very poorly. I mean, I'm my employer does not pay me to have an opinion. Um, they pay me to you know, go get the story and go tell you what's going on in Bulgaria or tell you what's going on in South Texas. They don't care what I think about it, and they shouldn't. There are a lot of quote-unquote journalists who, in my view, aren't actual journalists because they tell you what they think, and the reader or the viewer should make up their mind on their own what they think. I shouldn't tell you what to think. I have no business doing that. Right. Your job is to acquire the facts as best you can, relay them to us so then we can formulate an opinion, an educated opinion, instead of you choosing the facts that support your opinion to then reinforce your opinion and convince us that we share that opinion. Right. I was reading a 
a dissection of a story that was done in the Washington Post by a super intelligent journalist, and their their editor was talking about the story and how they did it, and the editor kind of described the reporter's job in a perfect way, better than I could have ever done, but he talked about how, you know, we report, we write, yes, we frame a story, but we don't give a conclusion for the reader. That's the reader's job. It may seem funny that I've talked to you this much about journalism on an outdoor podcast. <laughs> I do think that there are certain elements in what drives, say, you to be a journalist and what drives someone to be an explorer. It's just different aspects of exploration, whereas it seems like what you do is you explore the sociology of human interaction, whereas maybe a lot of outdoor people explore their place in the universe or mankind's place in the world that we're trying to exist in. So I do actually think there's a lot of corollary there. I agree. I kind of feel like I I meet a lot of people who are, say, engineers who are outdoors people. And I could, although I haven't met many, I could easily see how I could meet a lot of journalists who would also be interested in chasing those kinds of things. So I think it's more interesting to everyone (laughs) than you may think. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking of of my husband, uh, who is a documentary filmmaker and a climber. I mean, one of the things I think he makes films about climbing and, and other adventure sports. And I think definitely the reason, not only does he intrinsically know, kind of understand whatever sport he's trying to convey on the screen, but he, he lives it and he has that passion for adventure. And in a way that, you know, if he's chronicling the pursuit of a of, you know of an extreme athlete like yeah he's inherently interested and I think that I think that does translate perhaps that's why he, he and I get along as well as we do as well I mean we're both journalists and both outdoor enthusiasts I would say it's good to hear that you get along with your husband <laughs> yeah it's good <laughs> I'm lucky so let's wrap this up by letting us know if people are interested in knowing more about you and the stories you're covering and the things you're doing. Where should people go for that? Well, first and foremost, you should go to Bloomberg.com, uh, which is my employer, and you should they get a subscription. Should, we, should keep you, we should keep you employed? <laughs> yes, exactly. You should uh, buy a subscription to Business Week magazine. You can also go to my website, which is smajaprez.com, and I am on Twitter under the same name, smajaprez. And I post um, on Twitter, I, I post a lot of stories I'm reading that I just love, that I think are you know, make it make an impact on me. For example, that Washington Post story I I mentioned was about um, the previous life of Dylan Roof, who committed that horrible um, shooting in the African American church in South Carolina. And it was a story kind of exploring who he was before he did that. It just in the in the in the weeks leading up to that event, it was a very kind of singular moment in time that that story captured, but really fantastically done. So I post stories like that on, on Twitter, and then I also post my work in places where my work ends up if I do, you know, TV or radio interviews about my stories. And I'll make sure that we definitely link also to the article we've been talking about, about Waltopia. And one Thank final you. question, the gym you go to, do they use Waltopia walls? They don't, no. I live in Santa Barbara now, uh, and the Santa Barbara Rock Gym is an El Dorado uh, rock gym. It would be great if Waltopia wanted to come build a Waltopia gym in town. But there is um, Center One in, down in L.A. is uh, opening up a second, a second location uh, over near the airport near LAX. So I definitely hope to make it over there soon when they open up. Um, I suspect if you started climbing in a Waltopia gym that you would be 25% more liked. 
At least by a Milo. At least by him. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's getting dark now. It'll probably start getting cold. This is my first podcast. Oh, great. So I'm pretty excited about it. Well, hopefully <laughs> hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> hopefully you edit it uh, to make me sound okay. If you haven't figured it out already, Esme keeps pretty busy, and she is not letting us down since recording this podcast. She has appeared on Charlie Rose, not once, not twice, but three times, discussing the San Bernardino shootings that happened here in California late last year. She also spent four weeks traveling on the campaign trail, because if you haven't been paying attention, I know a lot of people that listen to this show like to spend a lot of time outside and maybe not so much time paying attention to what's going on in the world. But if you don't know that the presidential election is coming up later this year, you really should pay a little more attention. So Esme did just come off of four weeks traveling on that campaign trail reporting on the upcoming election. It isn't all work with Esme because she has a backcountry trip coming up later this month, this month being March. And here she will tell us about that trip in her own words as read by show favorite Erica. I'm going on a big backcountry trip at the end of March, which I'm super excited about trying to train for. It's a hut trip in British Columbia, a helicopter ride away from Nelson, with a group of women who I've never met. It's all human-powered, skinning up to ski down. While I've been skiing my whole life, I don't yet know how to skin, so I'm learning to do that. Especially excited because that'll open up a whole new part of the world, the real backcountry, that I'll be able to explore. And what better way to explore than on skis? And that was Erica, who is no longer sick nor grumpy. Bye. If you've listened to this show before, you know all about our show notes at gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Go there now. Look for this episode, episode 24, Esme Deprez, and you are going to find photos of our guest in action. So lots of photos of Esme climbing and doing other things, but links, links, links. We have lots of links this week. I'm going to give you all a little bit of homework because the nice thing about Esme is she writes about important things. So go to the show notes and there you're going to find all sorts of links. Links to EsmeDeprez.com, her Twitter page, her Instagram account, links to Bloomberg Business Week, the Climbing Business Journal, the Waltopia article we spent a lot of time talking about here in this episode, those three Charlie Rose episodes she appeared on, and a number of Esme's proudest stories. So go there, read those, learn more about your world, people. But not just that, because there are lots of other journalists that she looks up to and lots of other people who have written stories that she really likes. And so also there on the show notes, you will find a list of stories she really respects and would recommend you read written by other journalists. So get over to the show notes, go get outside.com slash podcast. Look up this episode, do your homework. I mentioned at the top of the show that I'm back from Costa Rica. I had a last minute job opportunity pop up in Costa Rica. I don't tend to travel. As a matter of fact, I have never traveled internationally for work, but I did just two, maybe three weeks ago, get a job offer to travel to Costa Rica for a week, putting together this shoot. And boy, was that a whirlwind experience. Had a week to get a shoot together to get to Costa Rica and then a few days to make sure everything was in place so that when my crew arrived, we could shoot everything we needed to shoot. The reason I'm even bothering to mention this, other than it's just cool to have had a job where I got paid to fly to Costa Rica, is because I want to mention Costa Rica film support and 
in particular, Julie Echeverry and Zeku Copley, two people who work for Costa Rica Film Support who helped me a whole lot. Without their help, there's no way in hell I could have gotten that thing to happen. So if for any reason anybody listening to this show ever needs a shoot in Costa Rica, I highly recommend looking up Costa Rica Film Support because you'll have a damn good time and you'll get your work done. And with that, we come to the part of the show everyone who's ever listened to the show should know by now. You want to contact us? You want to email us? You can do that. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. We will accept email there. I will read it. I will respond to it. I promise if I have not responded to it, resend it because apparently it will have ended up in my spam and I missed it because I promise I respond to every email. Go at ButcherBirdStudios.com. But you can give us a call too. 818-925-0106. You can leave us a three-minute voicemail there. And you all know this part. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you consume this podcast. Make sure you're subscribed if you're not subscribed. iTunes likes to unsubscribe me from podcasts. Make sure it hasn't unsubscribed you from this podcast. So subscribe, and while you're at it, please, please rate and review the show. I will love you. The show will love you. The earth will love you. Next time on the show, functional fitness freak. Come back March 16th for Francisco Camberos. You can listen to us talk about functional fitness and Francisco's favorite topic, running from dogs. See you then.